Welcome to Manifest, hosted by international evangelist, teacher, and author Perry Stone. Enjoy unique insight into prophetic and practical truth. It's time to feast on fresh manna, so get ready to be blessed and encouraged. And now, here is your host and teacher, Perry Stone. Thank you for joining me today. We're going to continue part four of our addiction series. And I want you to pay careful attention to me because I may have to do this teaching in two parts. I have a subject called a little toddy for the body. Fifty percent of Americans drink alcohol in some form and 50 percent do not. What I'm going to do is to start a series in this part to share with you why I teach my family and why I teach our youth group to totally abstain from alcohol in all forms. Now, some of you immediately want to turn me off. You're just going to say, well, I don't want to listen to that. But it's knowledge you need. It's information you need because there may be a lot of you that when we get into this later on are not going to know the information I'm going to give you and you've never heard it before. I've had some of my partners who would uh, drink alcohol in moderation after they hear me teach this say, I never knew that. No one, Perry, ever taught it. My church never taught it. It helped me to understand the reason why. And, and now they abstain completely. So let's just go into this. Here's what Ephesians 5, uh, 15 through 18 says. See that you walk uh, circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of God is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if I'm reading that in this English translation, it sounds like, you know, drink, but as long as you don't get drunk. However, the literal translation is do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So what Paul is saying here, he's not trying to tell everybody, go drink a little bit and have a good time. He's comparing it to say, look, if you go in this direction, you're going to lead to debauchery, but you need to be filled and continually controlled by the Spirit. Because I will tell you this. That if you become totally enamored, controlled, and filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what you'll discover. That the substances, the chemicals, or even the alcohol that you have or you're using, you're not going to need. Because the presence of the Holy Spirit and the peace of God and the joy of the Lord is going to fill you to the point that you will not need other substances. And before I get into this uh, real deep, uh, I remember that the Holy Spirit spoke to me months ago. I was talking to a good friend of mine, Jensen Franklin. The Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said this. He said, son, do you realize that when my people, I'm not talking to the world, I'm not talking to sinners, but when my people who are saved, you say they're saved and they say they're filled by, by the Holy Spirit or whatever, but they're my people. When they begin to become involved with taking illegal drugs or when they become involved with alcohol, here's what they're saying to their unsaved friends. Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not enough to get me high in the most highest presence, so I've got to have a high. Jesus is not enough to get me out of bed in the morning, so I've got to have this uh, drug to help me get up. Jesus is not enough to calm my nerves, so I have to take a toddy for the body. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. What are we telling the world? What are we telling people? When we participate in something that is a substance that has certain effects on our mind or certain effects on our body. Are we telling the world Jesus is not enough? But let me tell you, this Tennessee preacher wants to tell you something. Jesus is enough to get you higher than you've ever been. Jesus is enough to get you up out of bed in the morning and start you on your way. Jesus is enough to help you get a good sleep at night. Jesus is enough to bring you peace. Jesus is enough to bring you the joy of the Lord. Somebody ought to clap right there. I got a lot of time. Isn't that the truth? Some of, these, some, of these, some of these guys used to be bound up by stuff, and they know what I'm saying, that all you need is the Lord. Now, 
There is confusion, however, when it comes to alcohol or strong drink. Look at some of the scriptures, you'll understand why. Look not upon the wine while it is red, Proverbs 23:31. Then it says, Thou shalt bestow thy money for strong drink, Proverbs 4, uh, Deuteronomy 14:26. Then Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, mark, mocker, strong drink is raging. And then you turn around over here in Leviticus 10, 19. Uh, Do not drink wine or strong drink. And then Paul writes to Timothy, Don't drink uh, water, but take a little wine for your stomach's sake, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. So all of a sudden you read these verses... Well, this says absolutely no. Well, this one looks like it's okay. So how do you settle what appears to be a contradiction? First of all, there's three groups. There are those who totally prohibit alcohol of any kind, total abstinence. Number two, there are those who teach that you should abstain in this sense. It was in biblical times, but culturally it's not good for us today. Then there's a third group, and this seems to be a growing group, that says moderation. Christians can drink alcohol in moderation. So these are the three groups that you deal with in any kind of a church setting. Years ago, there was no issue about this. Most Baptists, Pentecostals, Methodists would never consider drinking alcohol in any form. It was considered, when we grew up, something that was ungodly or something that was just carnal or worldly. It was preached that it could destroy you, your family, your walk with God. Then came what was called the social drink. And the social drink was presented in such a way that as business people had to travel, as they had to meet with people, etc., that uh, it, was, it was something you may have to do in order to meet people and to socialize. What's odd is in the days of the revivals of men like Billy Sunday, when they preached, they shut the bars down. In the early revivals, when the power of God would fall in an area, one of the first things that went away was all the liquor business or all the moonshining business in West Virginia, Kentucky. So it's a really odd thing how that when God really begins to send revival and break loose, then there's no question concerning the issue. But when there's not a revival breaking loose and no conviction present, it's sort of like anything goes, it doesn't really matter. Now, I want to show you in the Bible what happened to people who would drink wine or strong drink. Now, look at this. This is very quick. Quick, we're going to go through this. In Genesis 9, 18 18 through 27, Noah planted a vineyard, got drunk, and was lying around in a cave naked, and his grandson Canaan ended up coming under a curse as a result of the incident. Genesis 19, 31 through 38. Lot's daughters thought that the, this is what the, the, the historians say, the Jewish historians, they thought the world had been destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, and they thought their father's name was going to be removed from the earth because he, there was no seed to carry it on. And Lot's daughters got him drunk, and Lot committed incest with both, both of his daughters after becoming drunk. Number three, when Israel began to worship the golden calf, Exodus 32, verse 6, 25, 28, and 35, the people took all their clothes off as they began to drink. It says they drank. As they began to drink, they took all their clothes off and got into idol worship. Amnon was a wine drinker in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 28. And if you read in 2 Samuel 13, he is the one who raped his half-sister. Then afterwards, he got drunk, drunk after what he did. Uh, that's in 2 Samuel 13, 28. Now, we could give you more examples than this. We could give you the examples of Nebuchadnezzar drinking the, with wine out of the uh, time in Babylon and how the kingdom was overthrown. It wasn't just overthrown for that. I want you to understand that. But it is in the Bible that they were having this big party with the sacred vessels of God. And God's judgment came on them. Here's what I want to say to you. Now, please listen to me carefully. I want to say this in love, but I want to say this firmly. When you begin to study the examples that are in the Bible, here's what happens when people drink strong drink. That strong drink being something with alcohol content. Number one, this is, this is important you hear this. 
When they became drunk, their judgment becomes totally perverted. Their judgment becomes blurred. Number two, when they become drunk, it usually leads to sexual immorality. Number three, as they begin to drink strong drink, their clothes come off. (laughs) Now, let me give you just a good example. Ready? American spring break in March. I mean, what did they do at spring break? I'm telling you, drink, drink, drink. And what happens when they start drinking? The clothes come off. What happens when the clothes come off? It leads to acts of fornication. And I want to say this for ministers. And I want to just be up front because I'm probably really jumping ahead of myself on the outline. But, you know, the Bible in the New Testament said a minister, a bishop, is not to be given to wine. And that means period. That means not at a dinner table. That means not socializing with friends. That means not on vacation when anybody's watching. But a bishop is not to be given to wine. And I want to make a statement, and I'm very careful saying this, but I know of five ministers over my lifetime. I'm talking about since I've been in ministry. All of them were either raised UPC, United Pentecostal, or they were raised in Pentecostal churches that taught total abstinence. These men started drinking alcohol, and when they did... Things begin to fall apart. All of them have lost their, uh, their companion, meaning they've gone through a, a, a serious divorce. Some of them have totally lost their ministries. And some of them are just struggling even as I'm speaking right now. Now, again, uh, this may not be the only root of their problem, but I do believe that when men who are men of God, who are ministers, I'm, I'm speaking specifically to ministers, what happens is when you begin to compromise in this area, what, what, what begins to take place is the, the, you don't have the, you have restraint. As a minister, there's restraint that the Holy Spirit gives you. But inhibitions are lifted, uh, judgment that you would normally judge yourself and say, let me put up a wall here. The walls begin to come down. And so in the Bible, let's go just back to the Bible, definite difficulties started with people who were given strong drink. Now, the kings and priests of the Old Testament, the priests were to be sober and avoid strong drink. Now, because of time, I have all these scriptures listed. I'm going to put the scriptures on the screen for you. You can look these up later. The, the priests were to be sober and avoid strong drink at the tabernacle ministry. Leviticus chapter 10, 8 through 10. Number two, the kings were instructed not to drink, drink strong drink. And here's why. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law of God and pervert the judgment, nay, of the afflicted. In other words, they can't judge properly and they'll forget God's laws as they do this. Proverbs 31, 4 through 6. Now, we read uh, in Isaiah chapter 5, 11 through 13, where the Lord is rebuking prophets for prophesying false prophecies because they were drunken. And once again, uh, read these verses later because what I'm trying to do is get all my information in here. So a lot of times I put the scriptures up, but for the sake of time, we're doing this. Now, here's the point. The Old Testament had three main leaders. It had the prophet, the priest, and the king. The priest was a man's contact to God. The prophet was the voice of God speaking to the people, the oracles of God. And the king was the spiritual authority over the entire nation. And in the Old Testament, there are many verses that reveal to you that a prophet, a priest, or a king is to avoid... The strong drink because of the impact it will have not only upon them, but the impact it will have upon the nation. Because what happens is this. I'll give you a quick example. A friend of mine many years ago, he, he was a very handsome young man. And women just were all, to be honest, they were just all over the guy before he was saved. They were just after him. And uh, he had trouble with pornography. And he had movie channels in his home. And when he got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord convicted him. He took the movie channels off. But then he goes to the pastor's house and the pastor has one of those movie networks on. And they're watching like a PG movie. And so something says to him, wait a minute. Why did you take it off when the pastor has it on? So he goes home and puts the movie channel back on. Guess what happens to him? Ends up addicted to pornography and years ago divorced his wife who was a wonderful lady. And he told me the story himself crying. And he said, I judged it by what somebody else did. Here's the first thing you need to understand. You know, there's a scripture, and I don't want to get into the theology of what this verse means, but to work out your own salvation, watch, with fear and trembling. Because there are things maybe I can do that you can't do, and things that you can do maybe I can't do. But when it comes to the idea of strong drink, I want you to remember this. Now, I may be getting ahead of myself again, but I'm just going to go with the flow right here. I want you to remember, first of all, that there are a lot of people who watch you and will pattern after you if you are a person who says that you're a Christian. One of the things that impressed me years ago was when a man told me this. He said, Perry, always remember this. The next generation is going to be more liberal than the previous generation. My dad never went to church without wearing a suit and tie. I go to church sometimes with a jacket on and a golf shirt underneath, and I just don't enjoy wearing a suit and tie. My son doesn't even own a suit and tie. He goes to church with jeans on and a t-shirt. Now, God help us if we're at that level. Well, they'd be going to church with, you know, in the next six generations. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what it's going to look like. Here's the reason I'm telling you that. In the, in the form of, let's say, alcohol. Let me walk over here to this, this glass right here. Martini glass. Okay. So you think it's okay. And I know this is usually at a bar, not at home. But let's say you think it's okay to do this at home. So in the privacy of your house, you pour yourself a glass. And you drink it, but you've got your children going up watching it. I, look, I've had, I, this has happened to people I know. I can't even count the times. The kids are growing up, and instead of drinking it at home, they go to a bar. So your kids are now hop, bar hopping. Now, what, what, what happens then is they, they raised your grandkids, their kids, to watch them bar hopping. Then what will happen is those kids will start drinking at a party. And inevitably... One of those children in your family, if you watch two to three generations of this, either ends up in jail, ends up an addict, or ends up killing somebody on the road. And I don't want to take, you know, I don't want to tell stories that my community would know, but there are stories that where I've traveled where young people watched their parents drink and felt like it was okay for them. And the moment they got 18, you know what happened? Got in a car wreck and they died. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. I've told, I've told my children, if you ever do this, number one, you'll be doing it against your mom and dad's wishes and your mom and dad's training, but you will never be able to say, I saw my mom and dad do it. In fact, I'm going to tell you something real personal here. I shouldn't probably do this on worldwide television, so my kids are going to find out something. I have two wonderful kids. I love them both dearly, but I have a trust fund if something happens to me, and it is in my trust fund statement that if either one of my kids are on drugs, or drinking alcohol at the time of my death, they don't get one penny of what I've left them. They have to prove themselves clean for six months of total alcohol. And, I, and, I, and you know, I'm telling you, i got a wife that if I go first, she'll stick to this. Believe me. Because here's the thing. If I leave them a lot and they have an addiction, do you know what they're going to do? They're going to go spend all their money on this right here or on, or on, or on something else that could actually cause a premature death in their life. And so some of you parents, I know that you understand how I feel about this. Now, there were people in the Bible that were committed not to drink strong drink. Number six, one through two, a Nazarite who took a Nazarite vow had to avoid wine and strong, strong drink. And we, boy, I wish I had time to talk about Samson breaking his vow and how his hair was cut. And the final vow broken was the cutting of his hair. And that's when he lost the anointing of God. Sometime I want you to read Jeremiah chapter 35 on the Rechabites. Now... 
The, Re- the Rechabites were brought into a chamber of the temple where they saw pots, pots of uh, wine. Of course, these were used, of course, sometimes for the offerings. They were then asked to drink from the pots and they refused. And I said before the sons of the house of Rechabites, pots full of wine and cups, and said to them, drink. And they said, we cannot drink because we made a commitment to our father that we will not drink, neither will our sons forever. And this is where Jeremiah places a special blessing upon the Rechabites as strangers in the land. Because what happened was this, they made a commitment and they made a vow to God to abstain from any form of strong drink whatsoever. Now, you said, well, why was it in the temple? Numbers 28, 7. Thou shalt cause strong wine to be poured out as a drink offering. Leviticus 16, 6. The remainder of the meat offering shall Aaron and his son eat. So, in other words, uh, the grape harvest, which was wine, there were drink offerings that were poured out at times in the temple. Now, you and I know it's easy to compromise from around people that we don't know. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which the king drank. Da- Daniel in Daniel 1.18 is sitting at a king's table in Babylon, and he says, Your meat was sacrificed to idol. That breaks the law. I'm from the priestly family. I can't drink strong drink. That breaks the law. And he refused to go either way. He said, Feed me beans. Just give me a bowl of beans to eat. Um, now, this is interesting because this is why I believe God blessed Daniel. This is why God raised him up. This is why God gave him revelation and anointing to see the future. It's because Daniel was not willing to compromise at a table with people. I mean, he could have said, hey, I'm not in Jerusalem. You know, hey, when you're in Babylon, man, do like the Babylonians. Come on, bring it on. That's how most Christians, can, can I be honest with you, would do today if they're in a foreign country on a trip. But the, he said, I'm not going to defile myself that way. And as a matter of fact, the, the, let, me, let me say it to you this way, because I'm going to run out of time here and I want to get this through. You have an outer court, inner court, holy of holies. You have the Israelites, you have the Levite, and then you have the priest. In the Old Testament, the Israelite was able to do some things a Levite couldn't do, and a Levite was able to do some things a high priest couldn't do. God was more directly serious on the character and the lifestyle of the high priest because the high priest was the man who went once a year into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, and made atonement for the people. Therefore, in the New Testament, we would call a high priest a bishop. I'm using a parallel here. A bishop is the highest ranking office that a minister can have, whether it's a denomination or whatever. It's the title of bishop, the call of a bishop. Now, in a bishop, husband of one wife, not given to wine, not given to filthy lucre, not greedy, hospitable. you got all those listings in Timothy about what a bishop should be, right? So here's my point. How close do you want to live to the presence of God? I'm going to go into some old-time sanctification preaching here. If you want to live close to the presence of God, there are things in the outer court that if all you want to do is come in church on Sunday, hoop and holler for two hours and go home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Live like you want. You're still going to be judged by the Lord in the end. But see, when you start getting into the holy place, where there's the menorah that represents the Holy Spirit, the table of shoe bread that represents teaching and the golden altar that's prayer, and you start living in there, there are things as a Levite that Israelites can do that you can't do. God begins to make you live a higher standard, okay? Then if you're going to be a high priest, which is to go past the veil into the Holy of Holies, to hear the voice of God, to speak in the God. Rabbi Guest told me years ago that, that it was believed that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he could speak in a language that was given to him supernaturally by the Lord that only him and God could speak in. You know, today the Pentecostals would call that speaking with other tongues. So in other words, here it is. 
if I want to just be an outer court person and live a basic life and not matter at all and just kind of float through, I may stand before God and, and, and my reward will never be given to me because the Bible said, let no man take your crown. Some people are going to get other people's rewards because people just didn't do what they're supposed to do. But if I want to go in and learn the doctrine and learn how to pray and spend time in God's presence, there's a higher level of commitment I have to have with the Holy Spirit and with God. And the, the final thing is, if I want to stay into the Holy of Holies where the ultimate glory and Shekinah glory of God is, then I'm going to have to have a higher standard in my mind, a higher standard of walk. And see, this is the reason why. You know, men like my dad, I'm going to tell you something about my daddy. My daddy went to be with the Lord March 10th of last year, but I never, I've never met a man like him. This man was true holiness and true spirituality when it came to the things of God. And this is the reason why before he died, uh, over the years, he had 16 people totally healed of cancer just by praying for them. This is how he had visions and dreams that were so real it involved in the United States. We got calls from people in the government who wanted to know dad's dreams because dad would see things in the spirit that were happening that the government didn't know about. How do you walk that way? You walk that way by body being clear, soul being spirit, clear, spirit being clear. And remember this, shun the very appearance of evil. Let not your good be evil spoken of. And so it's a matter of ethics. You know, to find a verse that says, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt do that. Sometimes you have to take the whole of the scripture and put it together to discover the ethics. Boy, look, how fast I'm running out of time. I haven't covered the subject. Now, next week. I'm going to show you the difference between the wine in Jesus' day and what is served at tables at restaurants today. This is something that most people have never heard. And I promise you that I've had more people tell me, Perry, that helped me on this subject of should I drink strong drink or not as a spirit-filled believer than anything else I've ever heard. And again, I'm not here to condemn, condemn anybody. I do want to help you, though, and give you the understanding of why, for example, we believe in total abstinence. All right, I got something special for you. I'll be right back in just a moment. Once again, we want to welcome you to part five of our addiction series on Manifest. Last week, we started a little bit of a study on what the Bible terms uh, wine or strong drink. We'd like to continue that study and go a little bit more into some word studies today. If you missed last week, I hope you either watch it or uh, some have already asked about the possibility of putting all the programs together on one DVD where you can have and we'll probably do that. So you can look into that later. Now, in the Bible, the Bible in the English translation, both Old and New Testament uses the word wine uh, in different places. In Hebrew, there's a word called tirosh, and it means it predominantly refers to unfermented wine found 38 times in the Old Testament. It is often associated with the produce of the field or an orchard. It is associated with grapes that are still in a cluster because one of the verses of the Bible says, look not upon the wine when it's hanging on the vine. And it calls it wine when it's still a grape hanging on a vine, which is very interesting. It also refers to fresh juice, uh, preserved, unfermented juice. Hebrew scholars and writers agree that tirosh is the fruit of vines or grapes. Uh, Jewish Encyclopedia says tirosh includes all kinds of sweet juices and must and does not include fermented wine. Here's some examples. Deuteronomy 11:14. Gather thou corn and thou wine in oil. Proverbs 3 and 10, let thy barns be filled with plenty, thy presses burst with wine. Isaiah 65, 8, the new wine in a cluster, destroy it not, for it's a blessing. Now there again, this Hebrew word, according to the Jewish encyclopedia, is unfermented uh, wine. 
Then it talks about let the floors be full of wheat and the vats overfly with wine and oil. Joel 2.24 You may eat the corn of the land and thy wine with oil. Deuteronomy 12.7 And also new wine being dried up refers to grapes from the vine drying up in Joel chapter 5. I think also in verse 10. So that's one word that's found in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, the second word, yayin, found 136 times, or yayin, is a Hebrew a word that's a genetic word for wine, but also it can at times allude to unfermented wine. It can refer to grapes, raisins, and this is in the Hebrew language, by the way. Also, unfermented juice, uh, but the word uh, is also used uh, in relation to wine that does have could have some kind of fermentation to it. The third Hebrew word is sheker, and it is translated in the Bible often as the word strong drink in the English translation of the Bible. Now, in the Old Testament wines, the sheker, or the strong drink, was made uh, from dates and not grapes. So, in other words, the traditional wine comes from the vine or the grape, and the strong drink actually comes from the date dates of a, of, a, of a tree. We get our English word sugar, sugar, Kind of funny accent there, sugar, uh, from the word sheker, and, and that's where we get our word for sugar. It denotes taking the sap from a palm tree, just like we would take a, a maple tree and get syrup from it and make ma- uh, maple syrup for pancakes. Uh, the, the sap from a palm tree is, is used to make what is called sheker, which was strong drink. And it's been translated again as strong drink in the Bible. The popular and critical Bible encyclopedia says sheker luscious saccharine drink or sweet syrup, especially sugar of honey and dates or of the palm tree, also by commendation occasionally the sweet fruit itself. In other words, using that word, that's what it can refer to. The Mohammedan traveler in AD 850 wrote, palm wine, if drunk fresh, is sweet like honey, but if kept, it turns to vinegar, meaning it will ferment. So they did drink what they called palm wine. But again, if you look, you look at the word wine, we in the West always think alcohol content. But in this particular reference, the palm wine was called wine when it was still sweet. I never will forget in Israel, my guide Gideon took me to an Arab village. Now, in Islam, there's a, a, a law prohibiting drinking strong drink or wine. But he took me to an Arab village. He said, I want to show you something. And they brought out what had been from the grape vineyard. And it looked like jelly. Just looked like grape jelly, but it was in a plastic container. He said, now watch. And they dipped in there and took a spoonful and they mixed it with bottled water. And I drank it and it was really delicious. And he said, now this is actually like a grape juice. And it's made from a jam. And so this is how they keep it going long. They, they put it in there and they preserve it in a cold place. And you take a spoonful and you mix it with water. And he said, some of them call it wine. So to me, see, I'm sitting here saying, oh, wait a minute. In my mental mentality, uh, Western mentality, wine is in a, in a bottle in a restaurant. But yet they're calling this wine when all it is is jam from a grape that's mixed with water. And so I want to I point something out about that in just a moment. And that's the reason why I said that to you. Now, what is interesting... Oinos is the Greek word for wine, which is used in the New Testament. It's also used of the wine of the wrath of God and the wine press of the wrath of God, the root word there. And so this word is interesting because it never distinguishes between fermented or unfermented that the Hebrew does. So in the New Testament, when you just read the word wine, like Jesus turned the water to wine, by using the Greek word, it does not indicate fermentation or unfermented, but hopefully, hopefully I've got time to talk about that. So... 
Tirosh is unfermented wine in Hebrew. Yayin is fermented wine. And unos is the Greek word that you have to understand the context of what is being written there. Now, the issue is not the wine itself, but the issue, to me at least, becomes the sugars that turn to alcohol and the alcohol content that is in what we call wine or strong drink. Depending upon the type of wine, and we're speaking now in America, really the world, Wine can have 13 to 14% alcohol, and some can have 18 to 20% alcohol, according to the research that we did. Here's the part that people don't understand. I want you to hear this because this is going to be a real surprise to some of you. When we in the West, for example, sit down at a table and someone says, I'm going to order a glass of wine, it's come out of a wine bottle from a lot of times uh, California or some other place where wine is made. Now, we think that that's the same kind of wine that Jesus drank in his day because it's made from the same vineyard, same type of grape, etc. It is in, the extent, in this extent, but it's not in how it was drunk in the time of Jesus versus how it is drunk today in America. Here we go. In the ancient time, there was only a certain amount of... of when, you, when, you, when you produced a grape harvest on your farm... There was only a certain amount of quote-unquote wine that could be made from the grapes. Now, think about this. The grape harvest is really one major time of year. The big harvest is, usually in the fall in Israel. They had to take that and put it in wineskins or sometimes jars and store it in cool places, but it had to last for a long period of time. So if they just go and you know, guzzle up what's there, it's going to be gone in a few months. Here's what they did. This is what they did on a consistent basis. In the ancient days, they took the wine from the wineskin, and instead of drinking the whole thing, and I'm talking about in a home, they mixed it with water. Now, this is all, in, you can find this in historical writings. If you don't believe me, research it yourself. The wine in Homer's day was 20 parts water and one part wine, according to Odyssey 9, 208-209. Pliny, historian, refers to wine in his day as eight parts water to one part wine. In other words, if you had this much wine... You put eight parts water into it. Natural history, 14.6-54. Aristophanes spoke of three parts water to two parts wine. Now, please listen to me. This is important. In the ancient time, in the average place where a wine was drunk, three parts water were mixed to one part wine. Now, this is the reason. If it had been sitting there a long time and was fermented, it diluted the amount of alcohol that was in the wine. For example, in ancient time, anyone drinking wine unmixed with water, listen to me, this is heavy. Anyone drinking wine unmixed with water, drinking it straight, was considered a barbarian. So in other words, to make the wine last longer... Three parts up to 20 parts water. Now, if you have a big wine vat, you're pouring the water and mixing it. And what it does, it doesn't matter the alcohol level, it dilutes it down. As a matter of fact, I heard someone who, did a, who studied this talk about how that in Jesus' day, the average wine being drunk at a table, being mixed with the three parts water or whatever amount it was, would, the alcohol content was diluted to a little about 1% or less, which is the same level of non-alcoholic beer. Now, Frankie Powell, who is a friend of mine, there was a study that was made, and I was looking for these notes, and I texted Frankie, but I didn't have time to hear from him to get the notes from him about this, because this research was done by one of the leading universities. I want to either say Harvard or Yale, but it was one of our leading universities. 
Because the wine in Jesus' day is mixed with water, and historians who've studied this understand this. Now, let's, can, I, can I show this martini glass over here, guys? Are y'all ready for this? The wine mixed with water in Jesus' day, the alcohol content in it is so low. Now, this is going to blow your mind. You would have to drink 21 glasses of wine from Jesus' day, the way it was mixed, to equal alcohol in two martinis. Now, stop for a moment. Let me talk to the Christians out there. And I'm talking to sinners because, you know, sinners are a whole nother, they're, they're a whole nother creature. They're a whole nother breed. Let me talk to you Christians out there. So you go out there and drink thinking, well, Jesus drank or the disciples drank or they drank in the New Testament. So you're drinking alcohol into your system. And most of you have never even heard what I just told you. Meaning that in Jesus' day, the alcohol, again, is mixed with water. Even at Jewish, I have something called the Hebraic uh, New Testament Hebraic Talmud. And I, and I looked for the book. It's probably in my other library to get the exact quote. But I had read in that book and quoted it in teaching in the past that at Passover, in the ancient time at Passover, they put three parts water to one part wine to bring the alcohol content down because kids at the table were participating in Passover, sometimes four parts water. Here we go again. Whatever alcohol is in there is so diluted, it doesn't have the impact when the, when the glass of wine is drunk. Now, could people get drunk? Yes. Did people get drunk? Yes, there were people in the ancient time who definitely got drunk. That's, that's, his, that's history. But what they'd have to do is drink it raw and drink it pure out of the wineskin or out of the jar or whatever instead of mixing it. But I will suggest to you Something here. Now, here's the big argument people have. I hear it all the time. When I, when I bring something up, I'm trying to help somebody. Now, look, I want to say something to you. I know a lot of you watching me do. I'm not here to condemn you because you have to, you have to answer to the Lord. But I will tell you this. It is not safe for you to do something that your kids and grandkids are watching you do. And then they're going to be more liberal, you know, as time progresses. And pretty soon you're going to be getting them out of, getting them out of jail drunk. You're going to be having an accident. They're going to be losing their license. Why do something that's not necessary? Uh, I, uh, I, had, I had a gentleman and, and uh, well, well, no, let me not go. There. Let me let me just stay on this. I'll get sidetracked. Here's one of the arguments about drinking wine. Jesus turned the water to wine. He sure did. Took six water pots after the manner of the purification of Jews. Prayed for those things. Turned the water to wine. And the governor of the feast picked his cup up and said, you have saved the best for last. Here's the question. Was it fermented or non-fermented? A marriage feast in Jesus' day lasted for seven days. Oftentimes, they could run out of food or drink. In this instance, they ran out of wine. Jesus takes six water pots of water, turns it into wine, and he said, you saved the best for last. Now, is this, is this governor saying, well, Greg, glory, now you saved the best for last. Well, this thing's really getting me tipsy. That's not what he's saying. He is saying the best taste has been saved for the very end. Now, I do not believe it's alcoholic. Let me just give you this. Can I give you a simple, a simple explanation why? It takes somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 60 days in the dark to take grapes who have juice and, and turn them into wine that has alcohol in it. This is an instant miracle which takes place. So he's commenting on the taste and he's not commenting on the alcohol content. Well, now, Mount Perry in Luke chapter 7, Jesus was called a wine bibber, so we know he got drunk with the best of them. Hallelujah. Now, let's go back and look at that. He must have gotten drunk because they called him a wine bibber. Okay, let's, let's, let's use your theory. They called him a glutton, so was Jesus a glutton? When gluttony is a sin, according to Deuteronomy 21.20, so Jesus is going to break the law of his father and be a glutton because they're calling him a glutton. No, they called him a devil. Well, I tell you, hallelujah. 
They called him a wine bibber. He drank wine. Well, they called him a devil. So I guess he had a devil in him because he called him a devil. No, they, here's the problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees called him a glutton and a devil and a wine bibber because he's eating at a table with unsafe people who are absolutely lost as they can be. And they didn't like the fact that he's associating with sinners because the religious people were so religious. They didn't think you should associate with sinners. And that's why they're calling him that. So just because somebody called Jesus a wine bibber doesn't mean... In fact, it was an insult to be called a glutton and a wine bibber. It's a total insult. They're actually insulting him and not complimenting him. And I just want to let you know that then in the context of what's being said there, that's what it is. Another thing I want to share with you, which is interesting, is at the Last Supper. Now, most of you watching me take communion in some form. When we take communion at the Garden Tomb in Israel, I always inform the Garden Tomb, I want be sure it's pure grape juice and non-alcoholic. And they, they do that with us. And we take communion at our church with grape juice instead of anything with alcohol in it. But let me explain to you really simple. It's real basic. Why? First of all, the picture of Jesus' crucifixion is Passover where you have unleavened bread and you have what we call wine. However, follow me carefully. The unleavened bread has no leaven in it. Leaven because leaven represents sin. Let's take a look at the wine. Why is it in Matthew 26, 29, Mark 14, 25, Luke 22, 18... When Jesus is holding up the cup and they're talking about the Lord's Supper, they call it the fruit of the vine. Because the term fruit of the vine alludes to somehow the pure fruit of the vine. And what I want to share with you, and I'm going to make this real simple, is this. If the, if the bread represents the body of Christ, the body of Christ knew no sin. He knew no sin, but he took upon himself our sins to be the righteousness of God. However, the blood of Jesus had to be pure. If it was corrupted by sin, it's no different than my blood and your blood. That's why he had to be born of a virgin. Is because through a virgin, his blood would remain pure, not tainted by the earthly seed of a man to create him. And so, therefore, the blood of Jesus was pure blood, never tainted by sin. Here's the reason I'm bringing this out. This may be why at the communion supper where they are serving what we call the wine, it's actually called in the Bible fruit of the vine, indicating the pure blood of the grape or indicating that there's no kind of alcohol content in it. For this reason, the alcohol content, the bacteria has to enter in and break the sugar molecules down to ferment it. To me, just like leaven in the bread would be a picture of sin, that's in your Bible, then the, uh, the breakdown of the alcohol sugars into fermentation would be a picture of his blood being tainted. When I go and take communion, I use pure grape juice, the pure blood of the grape, or what's called the fruit of the vine, because I have an understanding if I were to use something else, then to me personally, it could represent Christ's blood being tainted with sin, and he knew no sin. He that knew no sin took upon him the sins of the world that we could be made the righteous of God, but his blood remained pure. If his blood did not remain pure, it would be like any other animal of a goat or a bull. It would not have been sufficient to forgive mankind of their sins because he was the lamb, the Bible says, without spot and without wrinkle and without blemish. Now, one verse in 1 Timothy 5.23, Drink no longer water, but use a little. Notice Paul said a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thy often infirmities. Now, we do know that Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 3 and said a, a bishop is to be given to no wine. All right, that's the bottom line. Timothy's a bishop. He's not to drink any wine at all. That's in your Bible. Now, apparently, since the Greek word does not distinguish between fermented and unfermented wine the way Hebrew words do, we can assume that Paul is saying drinking wine here has nothing to do with juice. It has to do with fermented wine. That, in other words, a bishop is not to drink any kind of fermented strong drink or, or that thing of that nature. 
Timothy, however, is in a place where he's having severe stomach difficulties. So Paul says, now, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and often infirmity. See, Timothy is asking Paul for the permission to do something to try to help him uh, in that area. So I ask a scholar, a gentleman who is a Greek scholar and a scholar, I say, I say, how do you relate the difference here? He said, remember that in some countries back in that day, there was a lot of bacteria in the water. So when they would mix a little bit of wine in the water, the acidic content of the wine would kill the bacteria in the water. So it doesn't mean that Timothy's necessarily going out there and starting to guzzle for his stomach's sake. See, there are people who use the excuse, well, you know, uh, Jesus, you know, Paul said, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, so I, I drink a little bit for my stomach. Let me give you some advice. Pepto-Bismol works real good. Okay, so there's other things you can drink without something that has alcohol in it. I'm just I'm saying that jokingly, but yet truthfully, if I can if I can say that. Now I want you to understand something. People always bring out these verses. Yeah, but all through the Old Testament they drank. Okay, in the Old Testament they had slaves, and even in the New Testament they had slaves. Romans fourteen four. But the American slaves were freed, and we don't believe in slavery now, even though we find it in both testaments. Number two, in the Old Testament it was an eye for an eye for a tooth and a tooth for the tooth. But in the New Covenant we are to forgive those who wrong us. Number three, in the Old Testament, couples were stoned for adultery. They tried to stone a woman in John chapter 8. Jesus refused to let her be stoned and forgave her and said, go and sin no more. In the Old Testament, Abraham and, and Jacob had more than one wife. The New Testament now says one wife, 1 Timothy 3, 2 Titus 1 and 6. And so what I would say to you is this, that in the Old Testament, certain things were permitted like multiple wives, uh, drinking, etc., strong drink. And there are verses where you do find that. However, under the new covenant, certain things has changed. Now, I will just give you the bottom line. And boy, there's, uh, I've got more notes here, but I, I don't know that I can, I can do another series just on this. I hope I've helped you some with this, however. But let me just say something with you, and that is when we talk about all these things, the bottom line of this is this, that if people are looking up to you as a Christian and they're looking up to you as someone that is supposed to be serving God. I have a friend of mine that's a biker, and he rides with, I'm not going to name the groups, but he rides with some of the toughest, meanest guys, and he's a believer. But here's the thing. He said, Perry, as a Christian, they, I don't go in a bar and drink with these bikers to be their friend. He said, they'll slap me in the face and knock me on the floor and say, you're a Christian. You're not supposed to be doing this. He said, I can't look at somebody's wife and make a comment or a girl and make a comment. He said, I'm telling you, these bikers, as a Christian, will slap you to the ground and they'll, they'll, they'll never let you ride with them again. And so here's the point I want to make, and I want you to hear this in closing. I'm not here to look at someone and, and say and, and condemn you and try to put this on you. But if you've ever been with an alcoholic father or an alcoholic mother and you were raised that way, no one has to tell you how bad it can get. If you were ever an alcoholic and you've been delivered from it completely, no one has to ever say a little bit in moderation won't hurt you. Uh, you know, someone used the expression one time. They said, well, if we're going to do that in moderation, let's commit adultery in moderation. Let's lie in moderation. Let's steal in moderation. As long as we want to do a little bit of it. Well, I don't know if you can compare those things, but, it's, but there's a spiritual principle here. And that is this, that it is better not to be involved with something that causes a brother or sister to stumble. That's in your Bible. It's better not to be involved with something that's going to hurt your testimony. It's better not to be involved with something that your children can one day point to you and say, I just got it from you. I'm just doing what you did. I saw you drink. What are you? You can't tell me not to drink. But if you abstain and live a good life and be filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll always be able to tell your children, children, you never saw dad and mom do that. And that's a good feeling that you can have. 